Do you realize how much power you have as a consumer? I'm serious. Now, there's that famous quote that I use all the time, which is, you vote every single day by the way you spend your money. And over the last couple of years, I have found that this is truer than ever. Your beliefs drive how you purchase goods and services. And companies that don't adhere to your personal values or beliefs, more often than not, they don't get your money. And money talks. But... That doesn't mean that you just buy a product simply because you believe in the values behind it. There's a whole lot more to it, and it's something that my guest today has spent nearly 20 years working to study. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman of Still Being Molly, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, companies, and small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I interview an entrepreneur, CEO, nonprofit director, or an incredible person who's trying to make a positive impact through their career. My goal is to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact wherever you are. My guest this week is Lene Ferretti, acting CEO of 10,000 Villages and founder of the Bahavana World Project. She's consulted for East Africa Trade Hub, focusing on business development and training programs for more than 200 fair trade groups in Asia and Africa. Lene has also been working with 10,000 Villages for many years as the executive director, a national board member, and now as the organization's acting CEO. As a global maker-to-market movement, 10,000 Villages connects artisans in developing countries with conscious shoppers in the U.S., offering ethically sourced gifts, homewares, and fashion accessories crafted by hand. Every single product generates sustainable income and impact for over 20,000 makers in 30 countries who earn a fair living wage in safe working conditions. Now, I actually had the pleasure of meeting Lene at the Fair Trade Federation Conference back in March. And let me just tell you, this woman is incredible. She is a phenomenal human being, and I could not be more grateful to have her on the show today. You are going to be inspired, challenged, encouraged. Gosh, you are going to love this conversation. So without further ado, on to my chat with Lene. Lene, I could not be more excited to have you on the show because a lot of times I'll interview guests and I've never met them in person, but you and I actually got to meet in person this spring at the Fair Trade Federation Conference. And so I feel like I'm just catching up with a friend now. I know. It was great to meet you too in Austin. What a great place for an event too. It was really fun. It was such a great <laughs> conference. It was my first time at that conference. Have you been at that conference oh, before? Yeah, no, I've been to, I haven't been to any for a little while, but um, I have been to them before and they're real aren't they inspiring? It really just was I mean, so many of those uh the the fair trade brands that were there, um, I mean the other speakers, Liz Bohannon and um Jessica Honiger and you know, the panelists, like these are just people that I have you know, kind of known through the internet, or I guess I'm even a few of them maybe I'd met in person, but it's just really cool to be around other people who are excited about the same things you're excited about. So you get to, to kind of nerd out for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I hadn't seen Liz um, for a really long time. And so it was so nice to catch up with her. And I had never met Jessica before. And so that was really fun too. So yeah, yeah I agree. It's just a great, 
it just reminds you that you're part of a bigger community and that you're not working in isolation, that there are people all around the world working, you know, for these values. And that that feels great. Yeah. And I did not know that little interesting fact that, um, so Liz Bohannon is the founder of Seiko Designs and um, you actually served on her board, like right when she started, which is, I had no idea, like what a small fair trade world. (laughs) It is a small fair trade world. And Liz and I had met in Uganda Oh, probably around 2009. And we just kicked, hit it off completely. Yeah. And then they asked me to be on the board. And I was like, of course. Um, And so, yeah, I helped them to navigate some of those early decisions and just some of that. I don't know, that difficulty that you have when you're starting a new business. So I was was just, I was thrilled to do that. And I was thrilled to see her um, again for after a long time. Yeah. And I just loved, um, you and I had a chance to kind of just catch up one day and we just sat in the lobby of the hotel we ended up talking for like goodness like an hour and a half we had like this deep conversation I was like man you are amazing (laughs) oh you were amazing too it was a great conversation we just like went everywhere yeah it was like there was like we just kept going yeah deeper and deeper and deeper (laughs) it was just like I love talking this This is really fun I know um so all of that to say that I just uh, yeah like I said I'm I'm honored to have you on the show today and I am so excited to just share kind of your story and your perspective um, with the, the podcast listeners. And so to start off, Lene, I'm going to have you give us the Lene 101. So tell us who you are and what you do. Oh, it's more like the Lene Nine Lives. <laughs> um, well, I am a fair trader um, for, I'm a fair trader for the last 20 years. Um, I kind of, which is my second career. My first career is in fashion. Um, I was a fashion designer in New York. Um, back in the day, uh, in the nineties, pretty much. Um, and I worked for companies like Liz Claiborne, uh, and, um, Chico's and, um, you know, had the opportunity to just kind of travel the world and, and do design and sourcing and spend a lot of time in Asia and, um, really felt like I had a wonderful opportunity to have this very, um, robust career at a really young age. I was a vice president by the time I was in my mid-20s or late-20s, but it just wasn't, you know, it was very demanding and a bit depleting, um, and um, I was ready for something new, and fair trade actually found me. Um, It's kind of, that's a longer story, but I I found myself at 10,000 Villages in 2001 um, and was asked to do a volunteer trip to Uganda to work with women basket weavers. Um, I knew nothing about basket weaving, but I knew a lot about pattern and color and textile. And that's what I helped them to do. I helped them to take their basket weaving patterns, which were beautiful and traditional, but helped them to kind of reimagine the color and teach them how to do different color formulas and and kind of reinvent their basketry through color. Um, And so that was my first taste of working with women in the developing world um, with a skill that they had um, and my experience being able to help them in some way capture market, which is what they were really interested in. I I continued my work with 10,000 Villages and was a buyer for a short period of time. And then I was their executive director um, for a period of time, um, until about 2000 and I think it's eight or seven. And when I decided to kind of start my own work, um, in a company that I founded called the Havana world project, 
um, which is really meant to be kind of the work that I did when I started as a volunteer, which is to really bring technical skills and services to women's organizations um, in the developing world. And I, I really wanted to have a focus on Africa. Um, and so I've worked in Africa extensively um, for about the last 10 to 12 years. Um, but Bahavana also works in India and the Caucasus. Um, just really helping women's organizations to access markets um, inside fair trade and outside fair trade and give them the technical skills that they need to, to flourish and to succeed. Um, I was then asked to join the 10,000 Villages Board in 2016, which I was really happy to do. Um, and through a series of kind of organizational changes, I am now finding myself as the acting CEO as we look for our new permanent CEO and have just so enjoyed being back in the organization and helping that organization to refocus and modernize for a new consumer in this new kind of retail world that we find ourselves in. So that's like the short answer uh, <laughs> no, that's perfect. Uh, of my work uh, in fair trade and outside of fair trade. Oh man. Well, there's a lot I want to unpack, um, but I want to yeah. kind of go back a little bit and we're going to like really go back into the nineties um, oh where goodness. your okay. first career was in fashion um, yes. working for, I mean, these are massive global well-known brands, Liz Claiborne, Chico's. Um, and I know you, I remember in our conversation, Austin, you'd even mentioned there's a couple other brands that you'd worked with. I have, I have, I was, um, so I was a VP at Liz Claiborne, which um, created a lot of opportunity for me. And I actually had the opportunity to work with Liz Claiborne herself and her husband, wow. Art Ottenberg, which was amazing learning experience. I, there's just nothing else I can say, except I was so blessed and honored to be able to have that kind of exposure at such a young age. Um, it was it was amazing. Um, and so, yeah, I, I actually grew up in the fashion industry. My whole family's in the fashion industry. So there was like no question that I would go into fashion. Um, it's kind of in my blood and in my DNA. Um, and so, but I had this opportunity to be in New York at a very special time in fashion, uh, at a very special time with international sourcing and just had just amazing mentors and people who led me on my journey and just taught me so much. I just think that's absolutely amazing. And I wanted to know, I'm curious, how did working with some of those larger brands, mm. um, when you think about the work that you do now in the fair trade industry, um, industries, especially in the 90s, that was when we were starting to hear terms like sweatshops. And we were starting to really um, begin that very, very slow process to where we are today, where, where consumers are more aware of how things are being made. Um, so as you worked for some of those larger brands, and, and just in the fashion industry in general in the 90s, what are some of the things that you learn during that time that has kind of shaped how you see things today? Mm, that's an amazingly good question. I think there's a few things. One, I think that the importance of market and, eco and economies of scale and market access to those who are more under, who are living in a more underprivileged country or underprivileged economy is really a tremendous key to self-sustainability and growth. And so when people have access to work and fair, fair paid, fairly paid work, um, their lives can change significantly. Um, 
So I think that an understanding, I think also that the market drives the consumer. Um, the consumer has a choice uh, to, as far as how they choose to shop and how they choose to invest um, their purchasing dollars. Uh, but but they are the market. And so serving a customer and the needs of a customer is very important, whether you're working for a Fortune 500 company or you're working for a fair trade company or you're training women in small and medium-sized enterprises in Uganda. The market is an important thing to understand if you want to use the market to help you um, to attain financial you know, sustainability. Um, I think the thing that's really different um, about the marketplace and how the market was when I was in fashion and how the market is today is that I think people and consumers are becoming much more aware that the way they think and the way they act um, and the purchasing decisions they make can affect everybody in the global community. And I think that's a significant change um, that I've seen through my career in fair trade um, and that we really can have, an, we do have, not can, we do have an impact on each other. Um, and so making good, conscious, ethical choices has an impact and a ripple effect across any value chain. And so you as a consumer making those choices um, really does create change in the world. I completely agree. And um, I would love to know your opinion on this kind of question I get a lot from mm -hmm. um, people who are, I'd say consumers who are, mm, they're not into the fair trade world. They're not into the ethical fashion world. And for them, they might know a little bit about kind of how things are made and how things are run. But one of the, the very interesting questions that I get all the time, and I'm going to be honest, if, if you're listening and you've asked me this question, like, <laughs> I, I love you. Okay. All of the grace. Um, but sometimes I just kind of want to bang my head against a wall and they'll say, you know, for the, the garment workers who are working in, um, you know, awful conditions, being paid below a living wage, all these kinds of things, I'll get this pushback from some consumers who will say, oh, but isn't that job better than no job? Mm. And I kind of just, I don't, I mean, I know how I answer it, but I'd be curious mm. from your experience, especially having traveled the globe and, and doing work in Asia, doing work in Africa, what would your answer be to that question? And the importance of really holding companies accountable for making sure that those in their supply chain are being paid a living wage? Yeah, I think it's a fair question, but I think there's a there's something that's missing out of it. And I think that um, what's missing is that those people are more vulnerable to exploitation. Um, and so when you're in a cycle of exploitation, it can be very difficult to get out of that. And so I don't agree that an unfair wage or working in unsafe conditions is better than nothing at all, because nothing at all could be much safer and nothing at all could release someone or have someone not be exposed to personal exploitation. Um, and so I think that that's what fair trade works to advocate is that working for fair wages eliminates that vulnerability. Um, coming together on price um, and agreeing to a fair price puts control in the hands of the maker as well as the buyer. 
And then particularly in fair trade, which is very unique, is that we provide 100% interest advances and pay artisans in full um, for the product that is being produced. And so that creates a risk-free financial environment um, where they're not waiting for the end of the month to be paid or 30 days or 60 days to be paid for their work. So I think safe working conditions and a fair wage is a human right and the right of, and the dignity of work should embrace that and not exploit people for how they can benefit a corporation or, or, you know, or a capitalist kind of system. Yes, 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 yes. Um, that is something that I complete, obviously I completely agree. And one of the things that I've really thought a lot about when I hear that question or I kind of get that pushback from people and I say, but here, like that to me, and maybe this is going to hack some people off, but like that to me comes from a, an attitude or a position of privilege in that like you're placing yourself above this other human life that is in another country that might, that is developing. Um, because I, I don't feel that they would take that same attitude or position towards a person here in the United States who's maybe, you know, busting their butt working at McDonald's for, um, you know, minimum wage in New York City, where like that is not a living wage in New York City or like that's not a living wage in San Francisco. Um, You know, there's been a lot of talk like there's been some protests at at this is the only reason why this came to mind, because there's been some protests at McDonald's around here in the Durham community because of um the wages and uh, because of, you know, sexual harassment in the workplace and all those mm. kinds of things. And so you have a um, a lower socioeconomic status community here in our area who are working these jobs because it's the job that they can get. But yet they are because they're working at a minimum wage and because they're working in, in, in really a, a vulnerable environment, they're open to and more susceptible to being harassed in the workplace and things like that. And it's just, you know, I, they, they've really been advocating for themselves. And I think that that's so important because we know McDonald's has the money. <laughs> they can pay them a couple yeah. more dollars. Uh, McDonald's mm. is doing just fine. Um, mm. And yeah. so it's a choice. And so that, that McDonald's is making to, in my opinion, to not pay them a living wage here in the, in their community. And it's um, so to me, it's saying, oh, well, we're going to just value ourselves more than another human life that you just don't see or directly interact with in a developing nation. And so I don't know, maybe some people don't make that connection, but that's the kind of the connection I see. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think what you're talking about is really important because it talks about the need for transparency for all all businesses, whether they call themselves fair trade businesses or ethical businesses or B corporations or not, businesses need to be transparent and consumers need to demand that businesses are transparent about how they're treating their workers, how they're paying their workers, um, and how they are providing a living wage, to your point, to to their to their employees, regardless of their location. And so I think the more that consumers demand transparency, from the brands they support, um, the more we will have a su- more transparent supply chain. I think that's what par- what's part that's part of the movement that we're seeing today, and, and I find it to be very. I think it's very hopeful. I really do. Okay, I'm breaking really quick with my chat with Lene to thank our sponsor of the show, and that's. 
the Happiness Planner. They are one of my absolute favorite brands. They design some of the most beautiful, inspirational planners, journals, and notepads. Now, I personally love the Happiness Planner because it helps to keep me on track and find joys each and every day. They have journals that focus on different themes such as confidence, gratitude, growth mindset, and purpose. Great tools to help you become more self-aware, happier, and more fulfilled. Now, for those of you who like to use apps, the Happiness Planner is also available as a mobile and web app. Hallelujah, who else is excited? Now, how is it different from other calendar and to-do list apps out there? Well, on top of schedule and to-do lists, it comes with functions like monthly goal setting, reflections, meals, and exercise recording, gratitude journaling, happiness, health, and energy level tractor, and daily inspirational quotes and articles. You can check out their web app at thehappinessplanner.io or download the mobile apps from the App Store and Google Play. You can also download their printables for free 99, that's just free, from their website, thehappinessplanner.com. And if you want to make a purchase, you can use the coupon code LIVEWITHPURPOSE for 10% off. Now, back to my chat with Lene. Obviously, this episode is airing in July, but we're recording it just shortly after the end of um, the annual Fashion Revolution Week. Um, yes. And for those listening that maybe not you're, you're not familiar with Fashion Revolution Week, Fashion Revolution Week is a um, is a global movement. It was, I believe, actually started in the UK. Um, that uh, is is really challenging. It was it was started after the. Um, Rana Plaza complex disaster that happened on April 24th, 2013, um, where um, over 1,100 garment factory workers were killed in a factory collapse. Over thousands more were injured. And it's the worst factory complex disaster, garment factory complex disaster in history. And um, and so it's really challenged consumers to stand up and say, you know, we demand Uh, more transparency from the fashion industry. We demand, uh, you know, for workers in in the supply chain from the fields to the factories to the sales floor to be treated with dignity and respect and paid paid fairly and all those kinds of things. And so um, one of the kind of the tenets of this campaign is to kind of post on social media asking your favorite fashion brands the question, who made my clothes? And uh, a lot, sometimes people will get it confused with where are my clothes made? And it's like, no, no, no. Like you can look inside a tag and see, you know, made in China or made in Peru or made in wherever. Um, but it's, it's, do you know the people that are making your clothes and your supply chain? And um, I'll just go ahead and, and say it, but I have been asking um, one of my, my former favorite fashion brands is Lily Pulitzer. Oh. And I have, um, I used to love Lily. I was a sorority girl in college. Okay, I've worn a lot of Lily in my day. Um, oh. <laughs> and about uh, almost, we're coming up on like almost three years ago, I started asking Lily the question, who made my clothes? And so I started by emailing. I have called their corporate number. I've posted on social media. I have written an entire blog post. Um, I have done, I mean, pretty much like you name it, I have asked Lily who made my clothes. I have yet to receive an answer. Um, And I posted, finally, I did an Instagram post and asked again. And um, I I finally just called on my community on Instagram. And I said, can you tag Lily Pulitzer? Like, they can't ignore this. So, I mean, I had hundreds of comments, hundreds of people sharing the post, tagging Lily Pulitzer. Still no answer. Like, crickets. 
And I'm like, I know y'all are seeing my post. Like, there's no way your social media team has not seen this at this point. Like, we've we've got hundreds, if not thousands of people tagging you and sharing it. And yet you're ignoring me. And like, and some people were like, well, you know, the silence says something. I'm like, yeah, I'm sure it does. However, at this point, I'd like any answer, like even just to just admit, you know what, we don't know. Or, you know, that's something that, you know, we're not very proud of, but we're going to make steps. Like, I don't, I'm not asking for perfection. I'm just asking for progress any kind of answer and acknowledgement that you've seen my stuff for almost three freaking years. I'm like, just someone answer me. And I, I'm not giving up. Like, I think they think that eventually I'm going to give up, but they are sorely mistaken. Um, but I, I tell this story because you said like, you know, it's consumers have a right to be able to ask these questions and all these kinds of things. And I just think, I mean, you know, I realize that I work online and so I open myself up to trolls and all these kinds of things. But I just had to laugh because I had one person in particular comment on my post calling me a bully. <laughs> because like, you were going because, because you were demanding transparency. I was from asking, the brand. Yeah. They were like, This is you know, you're attacking this and it's tacky and uh you're you're being a bully and I was just like, How is asking questions being a bully? Like I was like I think our our definition of bullying is quite different but then she was like well you should be asking these questions privately i'm like i have for almost three years so guess what i did i called them out publicly because they've had three freaking years to answer me anyway clearly i have a lot of feelings about this (laughs) (laughs) but i just you know yeah no i think you know the who made my clothes movement and we also at Ten Thousand villages we also use who made my bag who made my jewelry who made my um my scarf um and we you know what we enjoy doing at Ten Thousand villages is really showing the people who do make the Ten Thousand villages bags and scarves and jewelry um, by holding up the sign in their workplace um and having them kind of tell their side of the story as far as what this long-term fair trade relationship has provided to them. And so that transparency um, is part of the 10,000 Villages model. It's part of how 10,000 Villages has been from day one in 1946 when Edna Ruth Byler began this um, movement as just a woman helping another woman um, to live a life of dignity through a fair wage. And so I think that, you know, we, I think if everyone demands this type of transparency, this is the way things change. Um, and so, and I think the who made my clothes movement is a wonderful, um, example. And we just came out of the campaign at at 10,000 villages just last week, um, to be able to say, you know, not only do we know who made your scarf and your bag, here they are. We'd like to introduce them to you. We're friends. We've mm-hmm. known each other for a long time. Yep. And we've worked at a, at a partnership for a long time. Um, and so that's, you know, that's part of the brand of 10,000 Villages. But the commitment to this transparency is something every consumer can do and require from the brands that they support. Absolutely. And I love, um, I loved the talk that you gave at the Fair Trade Federation conference, and and your focus was on sharing um, the data that ten thousand villages has kind of gathered in the last year or so, um, and the shift in the the changing landscape of the fair trade consumer. And you really hit on a lot of things that I have been 
talking about for quite some time. And it, and it's a lot of what m- the focus of my talk was is kind of in a gentle rebuke or, or I don't even know how to, if that's the right word, but like in a gentle but firm way say to a lot of these fair trade companies, look, you we are in a very cha- very different landscape um, in the fair trade world than we were 25 years ago when the Fair Trade Federation started. And when the Fair Trade Federation started 25 years ago, um, you know, fair trade was super niche. And even 10, between five and 10 years ago, fair trade and ethical mm-hmm. fashion was a much smaller, more niche thing. But here we are in 2019, and we are seeing um, J. Crew and Madewell come out with fair trade certified denim lines we're we're seeing athleta who's owned by gap become a certified b corporation we're seeing target partnering with ijm to eliminate labor trafficking in india we are seeing uh, megan markle and emma watson like some of the world's most famous celebrities become walking billboards for fair trade fashion and they are selling out of items within hours of being photographed in them and so you have a very different landscape for fair trade. And so you're seeing some you're, – you're now like these t- tiny fair trade brands that have been around for 20-plus years where they could – for all those years, rest on the laurels of being, hey, we make our stuff ethically. They can't do that anymore because right. they're now in the same conversation with these global fashion brands um, in the eyes of the average consumer. And okay. so you have to really go to those fair trade brands. And like you like you shared with the mission of 10,000 Villages is really – and, and even you said this earlier in our talk is like the consumer has a choice, but like they are the market. So the brands have an obligation to serve the needs of the customer. And right. for so long in the fair trade world, which I get it, like that's the way it was supposed to be, is fair trade brands were all about let's just tell the story of our artisan and let's let's get people to buy it because it's ethically made. But at the end of the day, if it's not a product that is well-made, uh, on-trend, functional, you know, high-quality, if it's all those things, if it's not all those things, then you're essentially just creating a pity purchase, which we don't want, right. which no, we don't want. No, it's not a charity purchase at all. No, I mean, we want to empower people through trade. Um, and so, and so trade and purchases are a choice and you're right. The, the competition is, is very different than it was 10 years ago Mm -hmm. for, for, for sure. I think what fair trade businesses have is a kind of a radical is probably not the right word, but maybe more of a revolutionary approach Mm -hmm. to, um, fair, fair trade practices, um, and a history and a longevity of proving while why fair trade works yeah so that they can speak to the customer from the their point the point of view of the experience that they have and the way that they have invested for 10,000 villages over 70 years for others over you know 20 25 years um that really can give the consumer confidence Mm -hmm. and I think the other thing that I tried to share in um in the in the research that we did at 10,000 Villages and share it with the larger fair trade community is that, you know, we have a, we have been at this for a while. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be 70 years the way 10,000 Villages is, but 
Fair traders work with the idea that long-term relationships create sustainability. And so we have had the opportunity to see how those long-term relationship, relationships empower communities around the world. And so we have to talk about that because we're not in this for the first five years. We have the opportunity to demonstrate to the customer and say, look, this works because women are being educated, children are going to school, people's medical needs are being fulfilled, there, there is better housing, there is college education, all of these things happen through transparency, fair wage, and equal respect in, um, in a trading relationship. And so I think in this next iteration of fair trade, we have to really stand up and stand up loudly for what we have been doing and say, you know, we, have, we can show you that this, this works um, and you can trust us because we've been doing this in 10,000 villages you know, position for more than 70 years and for the other fair traders for more than 20, 25 years. And, and that means something. Um, it means that, you know, what we, how we have invested and worked hard matters. Um, and so consumers can kind of come to us and know that, that we, that we can be trusted. I could not agree more. I love that. I, I, you know, I, I love the campaign that you guys have created, kind of this, you called it the from maker to market. And yes. what that does, in my opinion, is you guys do such a great job. Um, 10,000 Villages does such a great job of just, you are telling the story of the artisan, but you're connecting a, the, the customer, the market's need for these goods, but you're marketing to their their values, their morals, um, their their desires, their overall kind of the problems that they see, and, and you're you're creating a solution, and then creating kind of this really personal connection of the from maker to market, and which has been a big shift for Ten Thousand Villages. And I know that that's something that you've really been a part of. Um, that that Ten Thousand Villages has has gone through some challenges over the few last few years, yes. um, and that you're really working to kind of revamp things. Um, to reconnect the market to the makers. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, I would be happy to. Um, yeah, we, we have had to do some reinvention and some of the research that we did that I presented at FTF was part of that to try to understand what does the consumer know about fair trade? What, what's the misconceptions? Um, where can we be more effectively in talking about what we do in our message? And you're right. I think that historically... We think about fair trade um, maybe 10, 15 years ago. The focus was very much on the artisan and the maker. Um, and what all we're doing really by shifting to the maker to market movement is to really communicate our mission, which is to link makers to markets through fair trade, sustainable long-term relationships. And so we want to have a, a transparent value chain that communicates everything that we're doing across that value chain from the maker to the market side. And we also want to bring the customer into the maker to market movement, because as we've been saying, the choice of the consumer matters. Um, and so you can shop your values. You can shop um, brands that are working to be ethical and transparent. 
Um, and so your choice matters. And so you, as a consumer, become part of the maker to market movement and connect to 10,000 villages around the world. And so it's just our way of refreshing the 10,000 villages brand. It doesn't move away from, in any way um, from what we have been doing for the last 70 years. It's just a way of inviting the consumer in um, more than we have maybe in the past because we've been so focused on the artisan and the artisan development and the development in country. We want now the, the, the maker and the market to be equal in our messaging. And um, we want um, the consumers to know our makers, um, which that's something that we have done for a very long time, but to continue to introduce them, introduce their craft, introduce their skills and celebrate the craft and the culture that, that they, that they bring to us. Um, and so that's how the maker to market movement was born. I think it's brilliant. I love when I see companies do these survey surveys and really poll their audience and then listen and say, Mm. Oh, you know, because I've seen companies take surveys and they take the, the data and they go, ah, we didn't actually care about your opinion. <laughs> like, we're going to keep doing what we're going to keep doing. But I love that you've taken this data, you've taken this information and said, nope, you know what, we got to do better. Um, and we're going to change and we're going to shift and we're going to evolve. And, you know, that is so important in any business, in any industry, to change and shift and evolve. Businesses, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. Like businesses today run differently than they did 15 years ago and 30 years ago and 40 years ago. Like the McDonald's, I am using this example again because it's it's just top of mind, but like McDonald's today as a business and the way that they actually function day to day looks different than they did 15 years ago. Because you can now walk into a McDonald's. I mean, I don't go into McDonald's really ever, but I just know this. You can walk into a McDonald's and you can now order from a touch screen. And like, you're not even really interacting with a cashier as much anymore. Or like they've, you, they even have like Uber Eats and all these kinds of things. But mm. McDonald's could have said, nope, we're going to just like stick to what we know. And you come in and you order from a cash register and we're not going to deliver and we're not going to have a drive through or whatever it is. Um, and they would be tanking um but when you shift and change and evolve and just like with grocery stores like now are signing up with services like shipped and you know instacart and all those kinds of grocery delivery services like if a grocery store in your area doesn't want to sign up with one of those well they're going to miss out on customers because a lot of customers are now getting their groceries delivered and so it's it's just the way business works is is shaping and evolving and changing and I have seen so many fair trade businesses just be very resistant to that. Mm, yeah, and that's interesting. Yeah, and I, I don't think I really thought about it consciously until I started working mm. on my talk for the conference. Mm. And it's funny because I had started working on my talk um, after uh, Chris Solt, the um, executive director, had emailed me and said, you know, we'd like we'd like for you to speak and. He, he gave me an idea for a topic and I started working on it and I said, Ugh, I don't think this is the talk I'm supposed to give. And God, I, I held, I heard that still small, small voice of God being like, nope, nope, this is, there's a different talk you're supposed to give. And so I emailed Chris and I was like, um, so I started working on the talk and I don't think that's actually the talk I'm supposed to give. <laughs> I was like, can I actually talk about this? And he was like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, but I kind of felt that 
that nudge inside me to really encourage and shift um, the messaging to to challenge fair trade brands to think outside of the box and think about the next 25 years because mm. my vision and my goal is I would love to see the term fair trade no longer exist in the next mm. 25 years because that's just how business is. That's just mm. we just understand as consumers that businesses are are conducted ethically, that makers are paid a living wage in the supply chain, that there's, you know, there are policies in place to prevent against um you know, harassment and uh, and violence in the workplace and all those kinds of things. Like, if that's the the values that we are advocating for, then we gotta we gotta start standing up also as businesses, and and yeah. change the way we we do business. You know, that's a beautiful goal. I love that. I'm gonna hold on to that for myself. Yeah, that's what I'm <laughs> just saying. Um, but that I mean, yeah. So I, I mean, that's what that's what I I said, and and I I, I think I made some people mad at the conference. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, you know what? Well, that you know, it is what it is. So <laughs> you can disagree with me. Well, but yeah, when you're passionate about things, it's important to you know to speak and to pro- sometimes that can be provoking. But yeah. but I think when some, I also think that when things settle down, you know that it's it's good to hear different perspectives, mm-hmm. and so that that creates change, and um, yeah, it creates. And, you know, we're in a new environment. We're in a, it's such a, a quick, a quickly changing marketplace. I mean, we just, we do have to be open to new, I think, new perspectives. Yeah. And, um, and I think the consumer is challenging um, all brands to think differently. Yeah. I think all the examples that you gave were all brands thinking differently based on consumer need. Um, and yeah. I think it goes back to that for, for any brand. Um, but I think for fair trade brands in particular, if we were, if we are pioneers in this fair trade space or this ethical space, then to be a pioneer, we have to keep moving forward, um, and reinventing. And so that can be challenging and daunting. Absolutely. But once you break through, it can be so much fun. So much fun. I agree. (laughs) I agree. Um, there's okay, so man, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but there's one more Great. thing I want to get, I want to talk to you yes. about before we um, transition to our get to know you round. And this is something you and I had a, a, a kind of a brief conversation about um, when we were in Austin, and I wanted to just touch on it here on the podcast because it was, oh, it was so challenging and encouraging for me. Um, and that is the connection and the and the the very strong calling I feel as a believer as a Christian Mm -hmm. to this industry um and I I mean obviously I with this podcast like this is not you know a Christian podcast although my listeners Mm -hmm. like know that I'm a Christian so I'm going to talk about those things um Mm -hmm. but I have people from all different faith backgrounds and perspectives and stuff on the show and I love being able to have these conversations um and, and I know that you are also a fellow believer and and we talked a little bit about why we feel like this is this is not just a, a topic like and when I say this, I mean the issues of fair trade and, and advocating for things like ethical fashion, because so much of this industry is connect the fashion industry and the consumer, the consumer industry is connected to things like human trafficking and mm. how that is a, you know, human trafficking and, and sexual harassment, and all those kinds of things like violence in the workplace. Those are are issues that break the heart of God. And so. Mm us as as Christians as believers as followers of Christ like if that's an issue that breaks the heart of God then then 
it should be a part of who we are to stand up and say, you know what, like as a Christian shopping ethically is, is not just something that I am passionate about, but it is something that I feel a deep calling towards, Mm. but that's that we don't see that as much as I feel like we should. Mm. And, um, so we just talked about this a little bit and I just would like to kind of hit on it quickly here. Cause I think it's, it's an important conversation to have, um, because I, I, I want to challenge those, um, that, that are believers and, and things like that to be thinking about this as a, an issue of justice as an itch, issue of yes. uh, that breaks the heart of God. Um, yes. Yeah. So I, I'm just kind of setting you up. there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's, we had a really very deep and beautiful conversation when we met for the first time in Austin about yeah. this. Um, you know, I 10,000 villages as an organization is an expression of Christian faith and action mm-hmm. and caring for those in need. Um, and, and so, but I think also we can look at the Christian faith or I would say any faith tradition um, and see the roots of how our faith asks us to put our faith in action, hmm. really, in, in, this, in, in, the mo- in the simplest terms. Um, to live a life of nonviolence, mm-hmm. um, to demonstrate our values in the world, um, to treat people with respect and equality, um, to create a more just and peaceful world. Yeah. Um, and for me, that's what this is about. You know, it's about human dignity. Mm-hmm. It's about res- the respect of human dignity. And it's about my role in the world or how I see my role in the world as someone who wants to really be a champion of that um, and put myself out there to try to create some sort of change um, and, and, and stand up for my beliefs in my choices and in my actions. Um, and I, I, then, I, then for me, I feel like I'm living my best life um, and that my life and my choices matter. Um, and I, I, I think in some ways it's all I can do. Um, and it's kind of all I really want to do also, um, is I want my actions and my values to, um, to create change Mm -hmm. and to help create equality. You know, when I work in Bahavana or 10,000 villages with women around the world, we are exactly the same. Yes. We laugh at the same things. We cry at the same things. We want the same things for our children. We want the same things for our community. That is all of us really kind of living our values um, and demonstrating our values in the world and being human together. I mean, what, what else, what could be more beautiful? really. And for me, that's been, that's been my inspiration in all of this work is that the women and the people that I work with all around the world are certainly my inspiration. One, because we're so much the same, but in the ways that we're different, it's not fair. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I want to, I want my life to speak, um, and, and somehow, um, make some sort of a difference in, in creating, more equality and demonstrating um, my values um, in in the choices that I make as a consumer and the choices that I make in in the work that I do in the world. 
Yes. Yes, Lene. I'm Ooh. you can't see me, but I'm standing up. I'm giving you a standing ovation right now oh, because that is like you. that is so much my heart and um calling behind all of this. And um yeah. I you just you really articulated so much of what I have felt um because I yeah, I could not agree more. And that to me is like the perfect note to end on uh for this conversation mm. um but I'm obviously I'm gonna have to have you on again at some point because I there's like so many things I wanted to talk to you about and I didn't even get to uh, I love that <laughs> that would be great um so but before we go I have just a couple fun get to know you questions to sure. ask you and then my listeners know this is the portion of the show where my executive producer husband inserts a um, sound effect or movie clip of his choice to transition us. Um, we never know what it's going to be. It's always a surprise every single week. So, surprises uh, are good. <laughs> surprises are good. Uh, so, Lene, are you ready yes. for the get to know round? <laughs> the villages where the smiles shine all year round. The villages, Florida's friendliest hometown. From my family to yours. From our family to yours. Come on. So my first question is, what was your favorite TV show to watch growing up? Oh, my goodness. That's a silly question. <laughs> it is a silly question. Bugs Bunny cartoons. Bugs Bunny, yes. I love Bugs. Yeah. Looney Tunes, man. <laughs> Looney gotta, Tunes. We've got to get yeah, some Coyote with uh, Roadrunner Coyote with some Acme, an Acme yeah. anvil. Oh, yeah. Acme. And Elmer Fudd. I love yes. Elmer Fudd. Um, I was also a so big sweet. Marvin the Martian fan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so silly i went through admittedly i went through a marvin the martian phase in like elementary school and middle school and (laughs) apparently my parents uh like fed that obsession through marvin the martian christmas ornaments and so now every year at christmas when i'm unpacking my christmas ornaments and decorating my tree i have like eight marvin the martian ornaments and i'm like this is kind of embarrassing put those on the back of the tree yeah they go on the back of the tree uh okay (laughs) question number two is what is your most unusual talent or maybe a talent that we wouldn't know that you have Hmm. 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 i'm a pretty good cook Ooh. what do you like to cook i like to cook um foods from places that i visited Mm. but they're never as good although i started kind of cooking some not so horrific Indian food recently. Um, I got a new cookbook. Um, I like to cook Thai food, Vietnamese food. I like to cook. Yeah. I liked, and I like to cook some East African food, although it's a little bit, it's a little more difficult, but yeah, I like to experiment with cooking from traditions around the world. I, yes, I love, um, one of my favorite places. It's like a second home to me is Kenya. And I, I realize it's like the most plain, food in the world but chapati i could eat chapati all the live long day and i have tried to make it here and i can't do it i can't every time i try to make it it does not come out right and like i just think of the moms like i have been in some real remote areas in kenya where (laughs) these women have like 
their hands are essentially oven mitts because Absolutely. like they are literally just like touching their hands directly on these cast iron skillets in this fire. I'm like, how is she not burning her hand off? Absolutely. And they make the most amazing chapati and, uh, and, and chai tea and, mm. um, uh, oh, what is it? Uh, Ugali. And, Ugali. Oh, I love Ugali. It's so good. <laughs> so good but yeah i can't i can't make chapati like they do in kenya i've tried i fail every single time um <laughs> okay now i want chapati all right uh okay what books or but what what, what what are you reading right now oh boy let's see um i'm reading i'm always reading more than one thing um so i'm reading leonardo's brain mm-hmm. which is um kind of a study on how leonardo da vinci's brain actually worked which I'm very interested in because he was kind of the biggest overachiever that on the planet. That <laughs> so is I just want to kind of understand how his brain works. And then I'm reading another book uh, by an author by the name of Peter Greer, who um, is with Hope International, and it's called Rooting for Rivals. Um, it's a very good book about um, supporting each other. Oh, man. I am definitely adding both of those to my um my reading list. I have been really into audiobooks this year. So I've been reading way more than normal because I am listening to them. Um, But I still sit down to read, read, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Audiobooks for on, on uh, long plane trips to Kenya or to wherever you're going are really, uh, I find them to be a lifesaver. And so Lene, I am, I have decided to actually add this question to, as a question that I ask all my guests and you're going to be the first guest that I ask this question of. So you're like the guinea pig for this question um, that I'm going to now from now on for at least for the time being until I decide to change it again, um, ask my guests. And that is, what does it mean to you to run a business with purpose? Oh, that's a beautiful question. I'm so honored to be able to answer this. What does it mean to me to run a business with purpose? It means to have my personal values and my outward expression in the world aligned. Mm. And it means that I am living my personal best life and hopefully helping others by doing that. Yes, that was the best answer. Lene. All right. Well, you have just solidified for me that this is going to be a good question to ask. Lots of it's people. an excellent question. I really like it. I'm excited. I'm actually a little mad at myself that I didn't think to ask it earlier because you're like, what? We're, I don't even know at this point, um, like a million episodes in where you're like, you're episode 149. So like we're oh. 150 in. I'm just now thinking to ask this question, but hey, evolve good things take time and change. Evolve and yes. change. That's what we've been talking Absolutely. about this whole time. The the importance of shifting and evolving. Uh, Lene, it was a truly a pleasure and a gift and an honor to have you on the show. You are amazing. I adore you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh. Thank you so much. Thank you, Molly. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, let's do it again. Okay, I told you, Lene is amazing. She is one of those people I could just soak up every ounce of knowledge from for hours upon end. Now, I would love to know something that you loved or maybe something you learned from this conversation. Let me know on social media. You can find me at Still Being Molly or at Business with Purpose Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. And don't forget to use that hashtag Business with Purpose Podcast. And be sure to support our sponsor of the show who helps to make it possible, and that is the Happiness Planner. Visit them at thehappinessplanner.com with the coupon code Live with Purpose for 10% off. 
Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you are a first-time listener of the show, welcome. Be sure to visit the archives for past shows featuring amazing entrepreneurs and business owners who are literally changing the world with their businesses. And if you are a regular listener of the show, thank you so much for tuning in week in and week out. And thank you for your support. Be sure to head on over to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and click that subscribe button. By clicking that button, it helps to make sure you never miss a new episode of the podcast. And while you're there, would you mind taking a moment to leave a review of the show? Leaving a review helps me to know what you're liking and how the show is personally impacting you. This show is edited by my amazing husband and executive producer, John Stillman, with support from Kelly Dalton, and the music is by Mark Killian of Third Wheel Media. Thank you so much for listening, and go do something good with purpose on purpose. Purpose.